0: Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Allison, would you maybe start off by telling us a little bit about your background, the things you're doing in your lab and how you got into editing genomes of cattle?
1: (laughs) Sure, so my name's Alison Van Enenem and I'm here at UC Davis and I work in the Department of Animal Science. As you'll hear by the accent, I come by way of Australia, where I did an undergraduate in agricultural science and got interested in animal genetics then. But I'm so old that it was only 10 years after DNA was discovered that I was born. And so kind of the whole field of molecular biology has evolved as as I've moved through my career. But I did a master's and PhD here at UC Davis in animal genetics. Then in Two thousand and two, so about fifteen years ago I started work at in this department with both a research appointment but also an extension appointment so trying to translate science to farmers and also the general public and so my area focuses on cattle genomics and uh, using whatever breeding method makes the most sense to try to make cattle that are well suited to production systems and focus on things like disease resistance and some animal welfare traits and so that's kind of my background in a nutshell.
2: Sounds great. I came across one of your recent projects, or it's probably your current ongoing project, about producing dairy cows without horns. And that's pretty interesting. Could you
1: elaborate on that? Sure. So that project is actually being done in conjunction with a company called Recombinetics, who used genome editing reagents. And I'm sorry to say, because you've got to focus on CRISPR, but they use Talens, but that's just CRISPR with a different name to some extent. They use Talens to basically introduce a known allele from anglo- Angus cattle. So Angus are the black beef ones that are beef cattle and they have a naturally occurring genetic variation that doesn't grow horns. And so they use talons to introduce that same allele into the, the Holstein or the black and white dairy cow genetics. So normally dairy cows grow horns and those horns are quite dangerous to other cows and also to their human handlers who can get gored and so typically those horns are physically removed and it's usually done by burning them off when they're young calves and so what the idea was was to introduce the allele that's a dominant allele so that cows don't grow horns into dairy genetics so that those dairy cows would be genetically dehorned rather than doing it physically and so the company did that and we actually raised the calves here the bull calves who didn't have horns and we now have Six of their offspring, and sure enough, they faithfully transmitted that gene to their offspring, and so those animals also didn't grow horns and so that's kind of the role we've played in that, and talking about this is really an animal welfare trait that we're trying to work on, the beneficiary is the cow, and the' re- not having to undergo that uh, procedure of, of horn removal.
2: I see. I see. That's really interesting. So in this case, are you trying to, uh, so the ultimate aim is to have basically a whole generation or many generations of these cows without horns, right? And then these would be commercially, so the milk would be commercially sold or the cows would be commercially sold to other companies who wish to provide milk as well?
1: Yeah. So the way that dairy cattle breeding works is mostly cows are bred using artificial insemination. And so Kind of the concept would be that the bulls that are providing the genetics to be fathers of the next generation would be edited so that they did not have horns and they would pass that dominant trait onto their offspring. And then about 70% of all dairy cows are artificially inseminated. And so if you used that semen from those bulls and obviously the offspring of those animals wouldn't grow horns and so we've kind of modeled that over 20 years you would eventually have all of the dairy population carrying that allele that doesn't grow horns and so dehorning would be a thing of the past is kind of how it would be but that's very much dependent on whether or not we're actually able to use this technology in food animal production and at the moment there's quite a, a complicated regulatory discussion going on there as to what's the appropriate regulatory structure to put in place for food animals that have been edited for traits like this where it's not introducing novel genetics from a different kingdom or anything. It's really just introducing a useful genetic variant from one breed, Angus, into another, in this case, Holstein.
2: Right. Right, I see. And another project uh, from your lab that I found very interesting was uh, the boys-only project. So what was that about?
1: <laughs> so this one does use CRISPR, so you'll be happy about that. So basically, this is just a, a very fundamental research project that's being done. And so what we're interested in doing is more. So it's twofold. So there's some there's some technical aspects that are quite difficult, but then there's kind of the overall hypothesis. So the overall hypothesis is that there's a single gene that determines male. It's called SRY. And hypothetically, if we were to duplicate that gene and integrate it into the X chromosome of a male, then if you think about it, you've got XY normally as male. So now you've got X carrying SRY and Y males. And the, the semen that would be produced from a bull like that would produce Y semen. That's just. As normal, and then it would carry. It would produce X semen. That would be also carrying the SRY gene. And our hypothesis is, based on the same experiments in mice, is that those SRY females would in fact have the appearance of males they'd be infertile because there's other genes on the Y chromosome required for fertility um, and the reason that we might want something like that is in fact males are more efficient at converting feed to gain or beef and so they're kind of more desired in the beef production industry because they're able to get to market consuming less feed and of course that reduces the environmental impact of of production in that regard. So that's kind of the overall objective. The difficulty, of course, is that we need to do homology-directed repair in an embryo <laughs> using a template that would introduce that gene onto the X chromosome and so that's been one of the challenges is to get that at a high enough efficiency to make the basically we have to do embryo transfer of those embryos to get that to high enough efficiency to where we can actually make that work we're actually getting ready to transfer those the knock-ins on Friday to cows so oh nice. yeah yeah I know we're really excited I'm actually kind of nervous <laughs> <because laughs> yeah. you like so much can go wrong It's like oh oh, you know, there's just, you know, whether the cows got synchronized correctly and whether the semen inseminates the egg and whether the eggs develop normally in culture and then we do a biopsy stage and then they have to recover from the biopsy and then we have to pick the ones we want to transfer and then they have to get pregnant and then they have to carry them to term and it's just, there's a lot of biological variability that I have zero control over and it's like very stressful. Like sometimes I wish I just did lab work. (laughs) It's taken us a long time to get the knock-ins working efficiently in eggs or yeah. Embryos. yeah actually
2: yeah it's actually very interesting even in cells using CRISPR is has a lot of limitations so i can only imagine all the technical yeah. hurdles that you probably have
1: in your work yeah yeah well and i mean in cows you have to get the eggs from somewhere too so do you know what we do no tell us where would you get eggs from
0: through like some kind of micro dissection?
1: Ovaries of dead cows.
0: Oh, Oh. interesting, I wouldn't have guessed. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed, yeah. So we have to drive three hours down the valley to dairy cow slaughter plant that Cargill owns and then they get the the ovaries for us and then we bring the ovaries back here to Davis and then we aspirate immature follicles out of those ovaries and then we put them in maturation media to take them through to be receptive to fertilisation and then we fertilise and then we inject with our editing reagents whatever we happen to be doing and then they have to survive that then they have to go through seven days of culture then we biopsy them once they're at the blastocyst stage and then if they survive that and if they have what we want, then we freeze them and then we defrost them, transfer them into synchronised cows and that's only a 50% success (laughs) rate. So it's just like that's just to even testing what we think is true is true right so it's really really expensive and really really risky and so that's part of the reason that it's been you know difficult to get investment in this area so you've got that combined with a very risky expensive and unpredictable regulatory pathway and people are like yeah no thanks <laughs> no thanks pass <laughs> so yeah. there's safer investments
2: and by synchronized cows, you mean?
1: So basically, an egg, after it gets fertilized, it implants into the uterus at about seven days of since it was ovulated. Yeah. And so we have to get the cows that are going to receive our eggs to be seven days post ovulation for their uterus to be in the right receptive state to receive the egg (laughs) or the embryo actually. So we have to have our cows at seven days post ovulation if we're transferring embryos that are seven days post ovulation. And so... Just all of that, like there's a lot that can go wrong. Even two or three hours difference can be the difference between the uterus being receptive to the egg and having already kind of figured it wasn't pregnant and starting to slough off the everything that goes on when you're not pregnant from one right. cycle to the next. So yeah, there's all of that's complicated. And then we work with the vet school here, obviously, to get the embryos into the cows, and so all of that. It just takes a lot of coordination to make all of that happen.
0: Right,
2: right. I can imagine.
0: <laughs> actually going to ask if there are any like unique technological limitations that are unique to cattle but you covered that like like yeah, perfectly yeah i mean
1: definitely getting the ovaries is an issue and then just the expense of cows so to have recipient cows so what i just said that means that cows are not allowed can't be pregnant right so you've got to have a cow that's not pregnant well then that's a cow that you're feeding and she's not contributing anything she's just eating and so that's every one of those recipient cows is a huge expense because normally they would be part of our university herd and they would be pregnant and producing a calf and they would be paying their way that way, if you know what I mean. So there's an opportunity cost associated with having cows that are available to receive these... Embryos. And so that all kind of adds up. And then, yeah, just the whole unpredictability of getting oocyte. And if it's really hot in the summer, as it does get in California, it hasn't been too bad this year, but there'll be three or four months where the the eggs are no good. So the fertility of dairy cows goes down dramatically when it gets very hot because their eggs basically just get nuked. And so that quite often is the entire summer is when we don't have good quality eggs. And that's when the students are not and so, it's the perfect time to do all your research except that there's no eggs available and so that just like those types of logistics I think the people that work with mice or Arabidopsis just kind of have no idea mm. <laughs> right. how hard it makes it and so I certainly get jealous of the mouse people especially <laughs> with their three-week generation interval so I've got a nine month generation or nine month pregnancy and then you know two years until a cow is, is fertile or is mature to get bred so if I have a calf born today, I'm not going to get a calf from her until two years and nine months from now. And so when you're writing three-year grants, or typically you are, there's no way you can actually do anything in a three-year grant. You know, you really need long-term grants that kind of have a, a view of the length of the gestation cycle of a cow. But grant cycles are written for the gestation interval of a mouse. <laughs> and so it's, all of that makes it really hard. So those are, I think, the unique challenges associated with working with large animals that, that aren't true with mice or anything else.
0: I think I, I saw a documentary about all the resources that goes in to raise cattle for, I think it was mostly for beef, right? It's like almost all the corn in the country is for, to feed cows, not to feed no. us.
1: No, <laughs> that's, I don't know what documentary you're watching, but that's garbage. Oh. <laughs> In fact, I think 40% of it goes to ethanol. vast majority of it goes to pigs and chickens, and I think, the, or the vast majority of the remainder, and I think cows eat something like 5%. Oh. But I think I know the documentary you're talking about, and I think documentary is putting it very kindly.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, because it, it painted quite the opposite story. It's like all the resources well, are going into yeah. that, and it's better to eat cows and chicken, oh, yeah, pigs and chicken. huh?
1: Well... The difficulty with that narrative is that cows have this magic ability to convert grass into beef and chickens and pigs basically rely on feedstuffs that are similar to what we eat because they have a single stomach rather than the the four compartment rumen that a cow has and that enables a cow to take cellulose. And produce protein whereas pigs and chickens can't do that and so not that one's better than another it's just that they eat different feedstuffs and so the pigs and chickens more directly compete for for human feedstuffs in a way that cows don't and so this is a much longer discussion than probably we have time for on a CRISPR podcast but it's a really important one because these kind of these misunderstandings around the importance of different sources of protein become urban myths before you've had a chance to kind of have a discussion. discussion around exactly what the biology is and why different animals and plants do well in different environments.
0: Yeah, that's really great information. Thanks for clarifying because I did believe that what I saw on face value. And, but I guess still, like, the kind of the main one of the points that you touched on was about like using less resources, whatever they are, to turn like any kind of food like into meat or for humans. And so that's ultimately that's still part of the goal of this project, I think, right? You use less resources. Like yeah, just I mean, I w-
1: yeah, I would argue that, you know, almost all agricultural scientists are trying to work towards mm-hmm. that end, irrespective of their field. But I do really. I'm a geneticist so I have my you know confirmation bias but I do believe that genetics is a really important part of that discussion because if you look at the productivity of plants and animals today versus 50 years ago or 100 years ago genetics and selection has enabled us to produce dramatically more food on less land using less animals than we would have if we hadn't made those genetic improvements and I think that's kind of to me where editing fits into plant and animal breeding is that it enables us to introduce useful genetic variation into our breeding programs in a very targeted way that really accelerates the rate of genetic improvement that we can achieve in our plants and animals and I think that's where there's really a lot of shared values between what the scientists would like to do and also the public's interest in trying to decrease the environmental footprint of food production and maybe you know have pigs that don't get sick and don't need to be treated with antibiotics or plants that are more drought resistant or more disease resistant or can fix their Nitrogen. I mean, there's, you know, you name it, there's a lot of sustainability goals that can be addressed with breeding, and I really think that's an important use of this technology in our food production systems.
0: Definitely agree. Like, yeah, great points. So maybe could you comment on how far away you think we are from having genetically modified cattle, like in sort of like in the real world, like having those animals contribute to uh, milk and food?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we use the term genetically modified, which historically, well, it doesn't mean anything technically, right? It's an undefined thing. But many people use that to refer to genetically engineered organisms where you've introduced a transgene from a different kingdom. And I get a little nervous if we're just blanketly going to use that term for genetically edited animals and plants because often there is no difference between the modifications that are made using editing versus conventional breeding and so I just kind of draw that distinction out there because I think it's easy to conflate the two and obviously GMOs have their own set of historical baggage that we need to deal with but let's just forget all of that and, and I'll just more generally answer your question of when might we see these animals in the food supply and that's going to be very much dependent upon on how we approach the regulatory situation, I think, because if we look at genetically engineered animals, so animals that are expressing a transgene, there has basically been one approval in 30 years, and that product is still not commercially available in the United States, and that's the fast-growing genetically engineered salmon. And it has not had a very happy regulatory adventure, and basically the lack of a path to market has really disincentivized investment in the development of genetic. Engineered animals. And so, if there is an equally difficult path to market for gene edited animals based on the fact that they were edited rather than the fact that there's any novel product risk associated with those animals then I fear that in 30 years' time I might be sitting here, or I won't be sitting in the office, I'll be sitting in a retirement home somewhere having a discussion about the fact that there's been no gene-edited animals brought to market in America. Now, having said that, other countries are making different decisions. So Canada, for example, has a valuation and regulatory process based on novel product risk, rather than the use of editing to introduce intentional variations in the genome. So, you know, I think countries like Canada and some of the South American countries are being much more risk-based in terms of the product rather than triggering their regulatory overview based on the use of genome editing. And so there's quite a bit of disharmony in the global regulatory approaches to this as it relates to animals at the current time.
2: Right. And I think that's a very good point. But even apart from the regulatory how do you think is the public reaction to GMO? So let's assume all the regulations are passed and we do have these foods in the market. Do you think the public needs to be educated more or is that not a current hurdle? Um,
1: you know, I mean, I think if I look at current breeding programs, I think the public wants to be assured that animals are being treated in good welfare way. And so I actually think there's potential for public buy-in for attributes like dehorning or actually trying to do something to help animal welfare or particularly disease resistance I think is one that kind of does tick the three boxes of sustainability and so I think we haven't really had that discussion yet and so it's very hard to predict what the public reaction is going to be and Mm -hmm. I've actually done a little bit of informal polling with audiences where public events here on campus where we've had the calves out. And they've been able to look at them and kind of, you know, touch them and see that they're just cows without horns. And there we have high rates of support for using the technology for this particular purpose. And I think a little bit will depend on the behavior of the industries that have kind of monetarized fear around GMOs to sell their own products, how they behave towards this technology. So if, you know, the natural foods industry sees that there's a money-making opportunity here to cast fear around gene editing, and then they can sell their, you know, labeled non-gene edited product or something, then I think we may have, you know, the same marketing kind of misinformation going into products produced using this technology that we had with the genetic engineering discussion. So it'll depend a little bit on the application, I think, and also on the behavior of competing business interests as to how they're going to play it and whether they're going to monetize fear around this technology. Technology in the same way they have with GMOs
2: right right and are there any other projects ongoing that you're excited about or maybe upcoming ones in the pipeline
1: lots <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you're not excited right now you're not paying attention so you know I think that's the real power of this technology is you know you can test a lot of fundamental basic hypotheses and if they work, as you predict they might in the lab, then there's a lot of potential applications out in the world. And I think one of the ones that I think is is most kind of interesting is whether we might be able to use editing to basically enable the production of animals that are carrying germlines that belong to very elite animals. <laughs> and so basically you could have commercial bulls out there that are actually delivering semen or genetics, from the very best bulls in the breed. And it's kind of a way to enable artificial insemination to be translated onto legs and enable commercial bulls to deliver the very best genetics in a natural service way. And that to me, the opportunities for that in extensive range conditions where most beef cattle are raised and to your point earlier, most beef cattle are raised on the range out in grass, and so they would basically enable incredible genetic improvement to those extensive livestock industries like sheep and beef cattle in a way that we haven 't been able to do it up until this point there 's just no way to bring in all of those cows from the range and basically get them inseminated when they 're at the right stage of their heat cycle and so it 's just been technically not possible to do that, so we could have much improved beef cattle genetics, which would have the impact of of reducing the environmental footprint of beef production. So I see that kind of as a, as a win-win and a really exciting application of this technology.
0: I think you also mentioned using gene editing technology to try to like protect these animals from infections. Um, is that yeah. something that you and your group are also working on?
1: There are groups working on that. Our group specifically isn't because there's not that many genes that are going to be like one edit is going to make you not susceptible to a disease, right? And so it's kind of a rare thing. But there are groups working working to produce tuberculosis resistant cattle there's groups working to produce avian flu or chicken flu resistant chickens there are groups working to make pigs resistant to african swine Fever. You know, generally, we lose about 20% of animal protein globally to disease. And so, disease resistance is always a very big focus for animal breeders. And we will use the best approach we can to try to select for animals that are not susceptible to disease and are resilient. And if it happens that editing provides a useful approach to introduce a genetic variation that makes animals resistant to disease, then you can bet that animal breeders would like to use that. And again, whether they can or not is going to very much depend on both regulatory, which is very important, and also public perception. And so there's what you can do and then what you're allowed to do. And so that's kind of the juncture we're at right now. But I would argue that there's there's a lot of benefits that are out there. And I hope That we talk about both risks and benefits rather than just risks (laughs) because you know you'd never get on an aeroplane if you only looked at risks you have to always look at risks and benefits of any technology and so that's i think been missing in the gmo discussion and is really an important thing for society to consider because if you do say to breeders no you can't use this technology therefore you can't have disease resistant pers pig that didn't solve the problem of PERS. <laughs> You're still going to have that disease. So what are you going to do instead? Well, at the moment, you die or you get treated with antibiotics. And so that's not an optimal solution to me. So as I realise I'm a geneticist, but in that case, I think a genetic solution is better. But discussing those trade-offs I think is important because saying no to genetics is really has a big environmental impact and one that's perhaps not obvious when you say no
0: yeah yeah great points again yeah Yeah, totally totally understand what you're saying yeah well this is very exciting you know very important work we're glad you're doing it and just wanted to thank you for your time speaking with us and we will be following the progress and hopefully we can reach back out to you down the road a bit and see how things have been going with you down the road
1: i I sure hope in nine months time you'll ring and i'll tell you we just had a calf. that would be cool yeah that would definitely be
2: cool We, we would be excited to know that We'll yeah, have you back I again. Would, I'll be more excited. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you so All much right. for your time today. Bye.
1: Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthego blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crisprcuts at CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthego. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.